BP and the road to net zero. Can the world live without fossil fuels? And if it can, what will be the role of oil and gas companies in enabling that transition? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. My guest today is Julia Kirkier, Executive Vice President at BP for Strategy, Sustainability and Ventures. She is also responsible for BP's ethics and compliance. Prior to BP, Julia was a senior partner at McKinsey, where she headed their global downstream oil and gas practice. Before we go any further, I should declare that Jero Hambro is a shareholder in BP. All of our UK equity funds, for example, own positions in the stock. We therefore want BP to be successful and to have a successful transition to a net zero world. Julia, welcome to Organising the Future. Thank you, Andrew. I'd like to focus our conversation today on the trilemma facing you know, big uh, oil and gas companies, affordability, security and sustainability. But first, tell us a little bit about BP's transition strategy. And you have to highlight that you have been in the news a little bit on this recently with a maybe a slight tweak to your strategy. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew, again. Um, I think starting with the energy trilemma is the right thing to do because it's very much the topic of the moment and it's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing uh, in terms of a generation. The recent events, if you take particularly the Russia invasion of Ukraine, have actually shown that society wants and needs a better energy system, and that is an energy system which is secure, affordable, and low carbon. And, um, and if you look at our strategy, that strategy is really anchored on that. Um, it builds on a purpose which is to reimagine energy, and it builds on transitioning BP from what we call an international oil company to an integrated energy company. And that basically means that we need to, as a company, continue to supply the energy that the world needs today, which is primarily hydrocarbons-based. And as we do so, we need to do it with the highest margin, the lowest cost, and the lowest emissions possible. And while we're doing that, at the same time, we're actually building the energy system of the future through our investments into low-carbon technologies. So to your question, if I um, try to describe the strategy, I would describe it as three core areas of focus, resilient hydrocarbons, our convenience and mobility activity, think about our retails activity, our B2B and B2C customers, uh, and low-carbon energy. Five what we call transition growth engines, which are enabling both our transition but the world transitioning, and those are bioenergy, electric vehicle charging, uh, convenience, hydrogen, low-carbon hydrogen, and, uh, and renewables. And it's all on the pinned by a set of foundations, which are our ambition to be net zero by 2050 or sooner, um, our sustainability frame, across people, planet, and carbon, a financial frame uh, which gives predictable returns to our shareholders, and then building on our strengths, which is we are already a global company present in 65 countries. We have a huge global trading organization, and we are already integrating across value chains. 
Area that I think it could be interesting to unpick a little yep. bit more is it the inevitable dynamic tension that exists in that trilemma. You know, you mentioned about the highest possible margin. Yep. Now that can sit quite uncomfortably with many of the people who are focusing on just the climate science alone and the activism. And it sort of links to a to topic we were just discussing yep. in the preamble about the sort of double materiality. And how do you, you know, how do you see that, you know, you're, you're in charge of the ethics at BP. Yep. How do you see that balance between meeting the very clear and increasingly certain climate science yep. around climate change with that notion of making a profit, which to some can seem quite a vulgar concept? Yeah. Well, I think I would start by saying that the world needs to transition, right? The science and, and, and when we talk about the science, we typically refer to the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change Science, is very clear as to the need to transition the energy system. Um, now, if whichever scenario you take, even the most ambitious net zero scenarios, so take the IEA net zero scenario, every single scenario has oil and gas in the mix in 2050. So if I take the IEA net zero scenario, you see basically oil production reducing from 100 million barrels a day approximately today to something like 20 to 25 in uh, 2050. Even in that scenario, in this decade up to 2030, we need 400 to 450 billion investment into oil and gas on a yearly basis to be on that scenario. And that's the most ambitious net zero scenario. So I think um, we need to all understand that we cannot transition the system from one day to the other. It takes time because it's a fundamental rewiring of the entire energy system. And we will need oil and gas for quite some time in the system as we build the low carbon alternatives. So with that in mind, our role is to continue to provide that oil and gas production at the lowest cost. And while we do so, we need to actually reduce emissions as much as we can. And we're doing it at different levels. We are, we've announced a name to reduce operational emissions, so scope one and scope two emissions, by 50% to 2030. Uh, we have already reduced by 41% uh, in 2022 versus 2019. And the last example is on methane emissions, methane intensity, where again we have reduced our uh, methane intensity from what was 0.14% to 0.05% in 2022. So it's, we need to continue to supply the energy the world needs today and acknowledge that the world needs it. Uh, but we need to do it in the best possible way, which is what we're trying to do. And you talked there about the sort of needs of the, the global economic system. Yeah. And I've, I'm always intrigued by the sort of incentives that civil society, if you like, po po policymakers put in place, you know, and how is, is that essentially the, the main motivating and driving factor to your, your behaviours? You know, because this is something I think there's always a challenge in the debate for investors who you know, we are actively, actively engaged with you. We challenge you on your transition planning. But energy security is just a surely just a political response. And that's behind why maybe you've changed some elements of your transition plan in the latest announcement. So 
I would go back to um, the energy trilemma, right? Um, we, the strategy is very fundamentally aligned to the energy trilemma. At the core, we have not changed the strategy. We are still aiming to be net zero by 2050 or sooner. We still have 2030 aims. We're still aiming to transition the company from an international oil company to an integrated energy company. We're still aiming to allocate 50% of our capital into our transition growth engines by 2030. Um, so the strategy itself has not changed. Now let's look at the last three years, right? Incredible volatility, COVID hit. On the back of COVID hit, a macroeconomic acceleration. Russia invades Ukraine on the back of that an energy crisis. Within two weeks, we basically had European gas prices 187% higher, Brent prices 41% higher, right? So a significant energy crisis. On the back of that, let's not forget that we, within 96 hours of the war started, exited Russia. Uh, we had a 20% almost stake in Rosneft. We exited within 96 hours. And that accounted for 25% of our production and 30% of our reserves. So it was a very fundamental portfolio change to us. And then the last thing I would say is if you look forward and you take all those IPCC scenarios, there's hundreds of scenarios aligned to Paris, right? So there's incredible uncertainty as to how this will play out. So while the strategy remains, we had to apply flexibility. And what we've done is we've said we would increase investment into our hydrocarbons portfolio by 8 billion through the decade. And we would at the same time increase investment into our transition businesses by 8 billion. That's for a total of 55 to 65 billion through the decade, which is a pretty significant capital investment number. Um, so I would say um, we had to apply that flexibility. We will, uh, I think, as we overall, an energy system and companies transition and nav navigate the uncertainty that we're facing, we will have to continue to actually apply flexibility because we need to ensure that as we transition, we as a company are resilient through that transition so that we can deliver on the ultimate goal, which is be successful in the transition. You made record profits last year, $28 billion. I think people forget that you were loss-making in 2020. So the the energy industry is a very volatile, is very volatile price. You know, yep. The oil price went negative for a while, so we didn't just see soaring uh, gas prices. We've also seen it going in the other way. And, you know, I just wonder whether you can talk a little bit about how you see the you know, the financial opportunities and that balance between the investment in renewables versus the investment in fossil fuel production. Yeah. And because it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about stranded assets. Stranded assets haven't actually occurred quite at the rate that some people thought they would. But, but surely energy security is going to be about investing far more in renewables than being reliant on a very volatile commodity price and potentially, you know, countries that don't have the same democratic standards that, that we have and bring some very challenged governance issues. So, yeah, so I think, I think, again, the message is we need both, right? And uh, we need energy security on the hydrocarbons business and we need energy security in terms of building the new carbon, uh, the new low carbon systems. 
We've looked at the impact of the Russia war as an example in terms of energy outlook. And it's interesting because if you look at the impact in terms of, um, in terms of transition, on one side, there's an increase focused on energy security. And as a consequence of that, deglobalization, which could have an impact in terms of reduced GDP growth. On the other side, because you have an increased focus on energy security and localization, uh, the implication of that is that localized energy is typically low carbon energy, right? If I want to reduce my dependence in Europe on import of gas, I need to develop renewables, I need to develop hydrogen, I need to develop battery uh, storage, right? So there's a concomitance in terms of technology which should actually accelerate uh, the energy transition. From our side, in terms of investments and returns, um, the strategy is, is really set up to actually, um, to actually deliver on both. And when we look at our transition growth engines, we actually see very attractive opportunities to actually do very attractive returns, right? And we've communicated the hurdle rates in terms of bioenergy being north of 15% IRR. We're looking at hydrogen being double-digit returns. Uh, we're looking at EV and convenience also being double-digit returns and north of 15%. So I think... Um, it's a matter of resilience, diversification from our standpoint. It's a matter of doing the right thing from an energy system standpoint. Um, and we can actually deliver very attractive returns. And we've had quite a sea change, obviously, in, in the politics yeah. around energy in the last you know, two years, not just because of the, of the war, but we've also had the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Before that, we've had the EU's you know, sustainability taxonomy and all the incentives and subsidies and legislation around that. How, how is that be influencing your your thinking about you know, the long term? Because they, these are quite profound changes. And in fact, they're quite profound because they're in, they're, there's a degree of protectionism embedded in both what the EU and America is doing and also, to a fair degree, China as well. So, yeah. so I think on one side, um, you know, and let's start with the IRA. Um, we look at policies such as the IRA as game changers, right? If you look at some of those technologies, take hydrogen, right? Green hydrogen takes approximately a minimum of $5 uh, per kilo uh, to produce, and that compares with gray hydrogen, which is produced out of gas, at 1.5, right? So those technologies stand alone without support are not competitive today. Um, and we've seen this movie playing out with other technologies such as renewables 15 years ago. So what you need to do is actually drive uh, deployment of a technology's investment and commercial scale of a technology so that you can abate the cost and the technology becomes therefore cost competitive to actually drive the change in terms of energy transition. And that's what the IRA does, right? Because through the tax credits, it actually abates the cost of green hydrogen by approximately $3. So you're looking at a 2025 timeframe where low-carbon hydrogen is competitive with grey, um, and that fundamentally changes the game. Uh, since the IRA was announced, we've seen 155 new projects announced in low-carbon and 100,000 jobs created. Right, So the energy transition can create jobs. Um, so I'd say the policy side is critical 
in terms of accelerating investment to drive uh, that scale. Um, and, um, and that's a frame that we'll need to navigate. And, uh, and we're very focused on actually, you know, taking the frame and actually on the basis of that, allocating our capital to make sure that we can accelerate those investments. You're based in the UK, albeit operating, yep. I think, in 65 countries, if I remember correctly. Yep. What would you say to the UK government about uh, improving their policy incentives? Are they doing enough, do you believe, to remain competitive? Because this is competition between nations on uh, the energy transition. Well, I think what the IRA has triggered is actually a race to the top. So we've seen the re response, for instance, in, in Europe with a Green Deal industrial plan. Um, I think the UK has already put in place a transition plan. And on the basis of that transition plan, we are actually, we have a very sound investment plan. We're actually planning to invest 18 billion pounds in the decade uh, in the UK. Uh, we're actively negotiating on uh, on some of the projects. So if I take as an example, Teesside, right? Um, I, you know, we have been selected as the first uh, cluster for carbon capture with the East Coast cluster and the Northern Endurance Partnership, which we lead, which could actually capture 50% of total UK industrial hub emissions. Um, and so that process is going through both in terms of, if you wish, permitting and acceleration, but also in terms of uh, the, the subsidy scheme or the economic model to make it work. Um, so I think different countries, different regions are a different place in terms of incentives and, by the way, ability to provide those incentives. Um, I think the common underpinning, independent of the incentives, uh, is we need an acceleration in permitting. Um, because the, what remains to be seen in the in the US, in Europe, in the UK, is how fast we can implement and permitting and, and by the way, transmission and investments in the grids are some of the two big bottlenecks. Yeah, it's good that you talk about the incentives because I do think it's something that we have to always yep. contemplate, particularly as investors, is actually understanding the incentives in the system and how that drives changes in behaviour. And, and they don't always act in the way that you expect them to. Sometimes the incentives can be quite perverse or you know, legacy. But you also mentioned another word in there that used to be you know, frowned upon in free market thinking. That was the word, the word subsidies. You know, yeah. America involved in subsidies, Europe. And you know, I think it's a really interesting observation that the role that public policy intervention and underpinning some of these technologies in the early stages, just as you know, uh, electric vehicles yep. were heavily subsidised. You know, I benefited from that, from my electric vehicle. Um, and that, that is a, quite a sea change in, in, in government thinking, isn't it? We now have much more interventionist you know, policy yep. in this transition. One word that you didn't mention, which is another word that nobody likes to talk about, is taxes and the role of taxes in this and balancing, you know, um, getting credits for investing in the North Sea versus windfall taxes. How do you actually see that from almost like your your social obligation and paying taxes? So I think, um, I think, you know, we are very focused on what we can control. And, and I would say our social obligations and what we can control can be framed at four levels. The first one is investment. 
Uh, if I look at 2022, we've invested 16.3 billion US dollars, right, in the existing system and in the system of the future. And of those 16.3 billion, 30% was in transition spend. Um, the second way we can actually impact society is by paying taxes. And in 2022, we paid 15 billion in taxes globally in the countries in which we operate. If you look at the UK very specifically, 2.2 billion, of which 700 million were linked to the um, energy profits levy. Uh, the third way we can actually have um, an impact is um, through shareholder returns and shareholder remuneration. Uh, many of the pension funds are actually shareholders. And in 2022, we actually uh, distributed 14 billion. So it's interesting to see that we've invested and we have paid more taxes that we have returned to our shareholders in 2022. And the fourth thing I would say is support our employees. We have 65,000 employees across the world. And in 2022, what we did was we actually confirmed that every single one of our employees is paid a fair wage. So we're very, you know, we, we do not define taxes. We operate within frames that are defined for us. Uh, but we're very focused on what we can control which is investment, paying the taxes, and, uh, and returning to our shareholders and taking care of our employees. To tack a little bit, you know, the oil and gas industry comes under you know, an awful lot of public scrutiny, not just you know, policy scrutiny and regulation, but how does that perception of the industry help or hinder you know, the transition to a low-carbon low system. You know, what, what, what's the role, do you think, of shareholders in engagement? How much influence does, say, a shareholder have versus yeah. government policy? So I think, I think it's actually very significant, and it's very significant at two levels. First of all, because obviously the, you know, citizens and the public vote governments, and governments define priorities, and priorities typically define policies. Um, so if we want to have policy in support of the energy transition, the choices that we make in that sense have a critical impact. And again, the IRA is a clear example of that. Um, the second way uh, public perception has an impact in terms of energy transition is that, again, this is a systemic change, right? We need to change every use of energy to actually transition the energy system. It's fossil fuels not only in power generation, but it's into feedstock, into industry, it's into plastics, it's into pharma. Think about coatings for drugs as an example, right? Um, so we need the public to understand that and to play a role. So as an example, I always mention, you mentioned EV, right? Now we need to deploy the infrastructure for charging but then consumers will have to actually make the choice to also shift uh, to lower carbon vehicles. So I think those are the two um, areas I would point out. Overall, I think um, on your question of engagement, um, this won't happen if we all work together. Um, and together means energy companies, industry, uh, NGOs, governments, policymakers, shareholders. Um, because the challenge is so big that unless we all work together, it's it's just not going to happen. And we, meaning companies who are today present in the energy sector, with global trading organization, global projects organization, 
can actually play a fundamental role both to decarbonize our portfolios, but also to build the value chains of the future. If you take hydrogen, it's about producing it. Now, the complexity of hydrogen is not only producing it, it's transporting it. You need the technology to convert it into ammonia, recrack it. You need the trading organization and the shipping organization, and you need the customers. And so you need large-scale, far-reaching organizations to actually make that happen. And that's why I think... To me, it's all about engagement. Now, so we had Professor Tim Lenton from the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter on, on the show. You know, we have a collaboration uh, with the University of Exeter, and he was talking about that complexity of the tipping points in multiple parts of yeah. the energy transition system and the, you know, the different parts on the green hydrogen would maybe start with fertilizer as an easier yeah. one to try, you know. Tra- transport. So it is, a, it is a lot of complexity. It's not something that no matter how much we would desire it from the science and the changes we're seeing in the climate are to happen overnight. And this is, I think, one of the tensions that we have in communication and working it. It's not like maybe tobacco. We've had you know, Philip Morris on the show before. And that's, you know, something was while well, it's an addictive substance, it is a personal choice. Oil and fossil, well, fossil fuels generally been embedded in our economy for 200 years, and it's going to be quite difficult to unpick it. But we, I think, we should be, and I think there's huge opportunity. I went to a very interesting lecture by Lord Stern and Joseph Stiglitz at Oxford, and they were talking about the economics of climate transition because we always frame it in the terms of the cost. But if you can recalibrate the thinking, especially at the policy level and which I think the IRA and the Green Deal in Europe you know, do, is they recalibrate to thinking there is an economic benefit from the expense around the transition. I can give you one example. If you take net zero power, and uh, that power station could actually deliver power to approximately 1.3 million homes, so zero carbon power, and it creates 3,000 jobs to construct it. 3,000 jobs, right? So there is an economic benefit, right, in terms of actually accelerating the projects and the, and the energy transition. So you, you, you see you have a central role in what is called the just transition. You do recognise that sort of social responsibility. And, and how, how you can manage that in terms of the, you know, the, the transition of jobs within BP, you know, because yeah. you'll have people up in Aberdeen or in plenty of other places around the world in the fossil fields, but you know the, the location and the types of jobs in the electrification in the greener part of your portfolio, different skills, different places. How, how do you think about managing that internal transition? Yeah, so we look at just transition indeed with two lenses. One is internal and the other one is the impact we have in, our, in the communities in which we operate. So if I take the internal lens to it, um, we have done a lot of work um, to actually think about how over time we can actually transition our own workforce and build a skill set. Acknowledging, as I was saying, that the oil and gas business will have to continue to operate for a long time. So it's not like um, that business is disappearing from one day to the other. So we will have a significant share of continuity there. But there's a set of skill set which are intimately linked. Uh, carbon capture, obviously, all of our geology expertise and reservoir expertise from our upstream business is applicable to carbon capture. If you take hydrogen as an example, 
we utilize hydrogen in every single one of our refineries, right? So we have a lot of experience in handling hydrogen. If you think about moving around low carbon molecules in the future, be it ammonia, be it e-methanol, um, we have very significant experience in shipping. If you think about bioenergy, take biogas. We just did the acquisition in the US of Arkea, one of the largest biogas uh, producers in, uh, in the US with 50 landfills. And basically what they do is they, they drill wells in the landfills and recuperate biogas, which uh, if not would have leaked into the atmosphere. We have a capability through the acquisition to one, accelerate the pipeline of landfills, two, drill more wells and potentially even horizontal wells, which brings you to our expertise from US onshore. And three, because we have a biosciences um, institute in San Diego, we can, through our enzymes technology, accelerate the fermentation and the production. So the point is we've done a lot of work in terms of the talent mapping, but there is a lot of overlap that we can actually bridge into, uh, into what's at the end an integrated energy system. And where we don't have the skills, uh, we're bringing the skills in from outside. Uh, so, you know, one example is Anya Dotsenrat, who joined us to lead uh, Gas and Low Carbon, who used to be the head of renewables for RWE. You mentioned carbon capture and yeah. sequestration in there and you know, the storage of CO2 in mines, old wells, etc. Do we actually have enough physical space to actually make this a reality? There's a lot of, there's a of, a lot of CO2 that's going to have to be removed from the atmosphere or captured you know what's the physical limits to ccs i think so i think the first thing is um so we have space right but i think the first thing is we need to drive the acceptability of ccs as a solution right uh, and i think there are very different um geographic realities to that um, if you take the us right the vast majority of pipeline projects in ccs are in the us partly because they are supported by, again, an incentive schemes, which is called the 45Q, uh, partly because there is an acceptability of the role of CCS into the energy transition. Um, if you look at other areas in the world, um, CCS is, has faced in the past more challenge as a way to procrastinate right, the, the, the phase down of uh, fossil fuels. Um, and I think that is a misconception, right? Because again, if you take the IEA net zero scenario, um, there is still a significant amount of CCS in the system in 2050 to actually deliver on net zero. Europe now, with their new industrial plan, has actually, uh, for the first time, put an obligation for capture at a European level. Um, so I think the first thing which is missing is just acceptability that it is part of a solution on a global basis. And then the second thing which is actually has to be worked out is the, the entire system, right? So we can store it. Um, we need to define and build the infrastructure to transport it, right? Uh, we also need to define the business model, right? The US is going for a CCS as a service type business model. The UK is more into a infrastructure regulated type model but that entire value chain needs to be structured you mentioned the iea forward projections you know, for 2050 still and, and you've touched on it a little bit in that answer on ccs 
you know, the role of technology, because, you know, to actually achieve net zero for 2050, there's an awful lot of things that we don't, we can't do today that is implied that we will be able to do over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And where are you on thinking about factoring that into a genuine net zero ambition when there are things that we don't know yet that will that will work. You know, it is one of the sort of worrying aspects when you do look at projections that they are based on hope, not certainty that these things will come on stream. I think we have most of the technologies. Um, what we do not have is those technologies at scale and with the right level of cost abatement, right? So hydrogen, green hydrogen is based on electrolyzers. We need to significantly abate the cost of it. We need to significantly abate the cost of transporting hydrogen. We need to, um, you know, we have the biofuels technology for sustainable aviation fuels um, as heifer first generation, then moving into alcohol to jet, but we don't have any commercial scale projects as an example, right? So I think we have the building blocks of the technology. What is missing is the scale to be able to abate it. So in a certain sense, it's good news, right? Because we have the building blocks. What we need to do is put in place the right policy environment so that we can actually accelerate that investment and, uh, and ideally find ourselves in the scenario, which was like you know 15 to 20 years ago, the renewable scenario, right? When initially solar panels from a levelized cost of energy were not actually competing with firm power, and today in most countries are actually the lowest LCOE, right? Um, so I'm pretty confident on the technology side. I also lead ventures uh, for BP. We're seeing many innovations, for instance, on electrolyzer companies which have the ability to abate the amount of power you use by 20 to 30%. So the innovation machine is running. Um, I think it's more a notion of how do we unlock policy? How do we invest into the transmission grid? Because we're aiming to electrify many things. But if, we, if a grid can't connect and if a grid can't actually take all that electrification, we have a significant issue. How do we accelerate permitting? How do we make sure uh, that we have access to critical raw materials? Um, and, um, and fundamentally, how do we have a master plan to deliver on all of that? And, you know, as an investor, I can listen to a lot of that and go, that's quite exciting because it, yep. it requires a lot of capital investment. And it goes back to the point we discussed earlier about subsidy and the role of subsidy, this yep. word that was you know, not allowed to be uttered in the halls of government for decades. It's interesting that that is the route that we're now beginning to take and realise to incentivize and accelerate the transition as opposed to carbon prices or taxes, because of course we have the gilets jaunes, you know, for, you know, people reacting to putting up the cost of energy is an efficient way of limiting demand, but it has a knock-on effect. And when we talked about the just transition, that becomes then a very unjust transition because it's poorer people in society, as we've seen over the, you know, the invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis. It's poorer people who bear the brunt of pricing. So... Yeah, hopefully the, we're seeing a, a change in subsidy, attitudes to subsidies and the, the incentives. I think alter. different geographies are taking different approaches. The U.S. is um, is basically taking an approach which is very tax credits driven. And, um, and one thing which is 
which is remarkable in the U.S. approach is that it is extremely simple. Provided we can drive permitting, the structure of it in terms of tax credits is very predictable. Um, Europe has taken a more regulatory approach where the EU ETS is actually very much at the core of it in terms of carbon pricing and that carbon market. Uh, and, and by the way, it's been very successful, right? Because we've seen an abatement of emission in north of 60%. So it has actually um, served its purpose. I think at the, at the end of the day, for those technologies which are today not at scale, we will need incentives and subsidies to accelerate the penetration of those. And from our side, what we actually do need is clear regulatory and policy frames so that we can actually orient and, and make decisions, right, in terms of capital allocation. So one final question. You know, we, you, you mentioned the abatement has been quite significant already. In some ways, that's the easy part of the, you know, the system that we've, we've done. We change the energy mix in the production of electricity and we can go further. The next stage could be a bit tougher without the right incentives, policies and technologies. Do you think net zero is actually achievable by 2050? I think, I think it is, but I think it is complex, right? And I think we need to all realise... Uh, what it takes to deliver on it. So to give a few clear uh, numbers. Um, so net zero implies a reduction, as we said, of fossil fuels and you know oil shifting from 100 million barrels a day to 20. And yet at the same time, we need to continue to invest today in the energy system. If I look at renewables, what you need to achieve is actually ramping up the development of onshore wind and solar uh, to close to 450 to 600 uh, gigawatts a year. That's two to three times, and that's every year until 2035. That's two to three times what we've achieved on our best year. Right? Hydrogen, we need to grow from 70 million tons per annum today of gray hydrogen, so gas-based hydrogen, to a number which is close to 300 to 500 million tons per annum of low-carbon hydrogen. EV, so it's huge in terms of undertaking. We have the technologies. What we do need, though, is, as I was saying, the policy frame. We need investment into the transmission grid. We need permitting to accelerate we need um, and uh, and we need to be able to deploy fast charging networks across the world. Um, so, to your question, is it uh, feasible? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. And I think we have a critical role to play. Uh, we are investing fifty-five to sixty-five billion in the next decade in those transition growth engines. That is investment at scale, right? So. Um, my call every time I talk about the energy transition is really let's all work together because this is a huge undertaking. It's you know, definitely a complex system. As Mark Carney said, it's the, you know, the tragedy of the commons and it is something that affects absolutely everyone and it is a, has to be a collective e effort. You know, as an investor, as I said earlier, you know, I, I'm very excited about the opportunities because the sheer scale of the capital 
investment cycle that is going to unfold over the next 20 years. You know, the, the energy transition, if handled well, with the right incentives, the right policies and profitability, could be very exciting. Um, but we do have to make sure that we, uh, we, we have all the components working together and not trying to pull in different directions. As we sort of come to wrapping up, we, we always ask the, the, the guests um, you know, to answer in less, hopefully less than two minutes uh, what their sort of bull and bear, sorry to put it in sort of old-fashioned stock market parlance, but yeah, what, what's one thing that you're really optimistic about and you know, one thing that you, keeps you up at night? Yeah. Um, so I'm an optimist by nature, uh, and it's one of the reasons I actually undertook this challenge. Um, so what's op- what I'm optimistic about? I'm actually optimistic about um, what can be done and what we are doing, right? If I see the progress we've made uh, from an emission standpoint, we've reduced our operational emissions by 41%. We've reduced very significantly our methane emissions. So significant progress, significant, inor- uh, significant organic growth, right? We now have 22,000 fast and ultra-fast chargers. That number was 7,500 in 2019. We now have a 2.1 million tons per annum pipeline of hydrogen project. It was zero in 2019. Uh, Last year, we took final investment decisions on 5.8 gigawatts of renewable energy. Again, significant increase from 2019. From an inorganic standpoint, we've acquired the largest biogas player in the U.S., uh, we just acquired Travel Centers of America, which is like a network of uh, truck fuel stations in America, which allows us to decarbonize fleets. So the one thing I'm optimistic about is I see the momentum and the traction and the opportunities in the company. And to your point of from an investor standpoint, if we deliver on all of this, we're seeing transition growth engines that can actually grow to account for 10 to 12 billion EBITDA by 2030. Now, 10 to 12 billion EBITDA in any company standalone would be a very significant EBITDA. Um, Now, what am I more, uh, what keeps me up at night? Um, Many things, but if I had to pick one, I think it is that collaboration piece. Uh, I think, you know, we have geopolitical tensions, conversations around decoupling um, and and in general um, an approach which is not always one of inclusiveness of all the different actors that need to participate in the energy transition and I think if we don't deliver on that we're likely to fail right so that's what keeps me up at night. Julia thank you very much for your time and a fascinating discussion on the complexities of the energy transition. And, of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you'd like to learn more about our investment opportunities at Johambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investments are on our website. Search for J.O. Hambro in your favourite browser.